Hello, and welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. In this podcast, we'll cover more than a dozen plays and musicals, including a benefit performance of Thoroughly Modern Millie starring Sutton Foster about 15 years after the show was first on Broadway. The first play we're going to talk about this month is Fire and Air, which was produced by the Classic Stage Company. The Ballet Russe and its impresario, Sergei Diaghilev, is the subject matter for Terence McNally's latest play, Fire and Air. He is the winner of four Tony Awards for the plays Love, Valor, Compassion, and Masterclass, and he also won Tonys for his musical books for Kiss of the Spider Woman and Ragtime. So Mr. McNally has covered demanding artists, gay relationships, and period pieces before. The Classic Stage Company is presenting the world premiere of Fire and Air with direction and scenic design by John Doyle, who did Broadway Sweeney Todd, the Visit, and The Color Purple. Legendary for its influence on art and dance from 1909 to 1929, Sergei Diaghilev galvanized the Paris art scene and engaged his talented circle of Russian emigres. A super mogul, artists who secured Diaghilev's approval were poised to take on a near cult-like following. In 1912, Vaslav Nijinsky, here played by James Kusadi Moyer, he choreographed and performed the controversial and erotic ballet The Afternoon of a Fawn to widespread acclaim. Nijinsky and Diaghilev were lovers, but when the young protege married while on tour in 1913, he was dropped by the company. This relationship and the outsized personalities of these two individuals serve as the basis for Act One. The second act explores the relationship with the next protege, Leonid Massin, played by J. Armstrong Johnson in a superb performance. Watching a play about an older artistic director playing Svengali to young men is more disturbing in our current climate of hashtag MeToo. So why is this play never more than interesting? Douglas Hodge plays the driven Diaghilev, frankly not as dandyish, haughty, and aristocratic as I might have imagined him. In addition to the two dancers, there are three associates or friends who really don't have enough to do. They're played by John Glover, Marin Mazzi, and four-time Academy Award nominee Marsha Mason. That they sit on stage now and then for no discernible reason just distracts from this small character play. For me, the subject matter was far more fascinating than the performances, which were fine, the play, good if sketchy, and the staging, which was totally underwhelming. Fire and Air is timely, though, and a thought-provoking piece of a historically significant and influential artistic period. This year I'm a subscriber to the Classic Stage Company, and unfortunately from my seat, the batting average for this season so far is 0 for 3. So let's go to the York Theatre Company and a revival of Hallelujah Baby. I am currently reading an exceptional book, The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. Equal parts harrowing and historical, three individuals' memories and countless research contextualizes the massive movement from 1915 through 1970 by black citizens escaping the Jim Crow South. Unrelatedly, I received an email from the York Theatre Company about its musicals and Mukti series. Mukti is an Indian word for in-street clothes, and here has the meaning of without the benefit of a full production. The first show this year was going to be Hallelujah Baby, directed by my childhood friend Jerry McIntyre. I didn't really know much about the show, other than it made Leslie Uggams a star, 
so I decided to go check it out. Who knew Escaping Jim Crow could be packaged as musical comedy, albeit with an edge? Hallelujah Baby covers the civil rights movement from 1910 through the 1960s, although there is an update which brings it to the present. Georgina is a young woman living in the South longing for a better life. She's played by Stephanie Umo, who's charming in the role. Her mother is a maid, played by Vivian Reed, famous from the 1970s for bubbling brown sugar and still quite a colossal force of nature. Georgina longs for a better life and quote her song My Own Morning. While reading a serious book about this period, I luckily got to experience a 1967 musical comedy covering essentially the same story arc. The show has quite the pedigree. It's composed by Julie Stein, who wrote Funny Girl and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The book is by Arthur Lawrence, who was associated with Gypsy and West Side Story, and lyrics were by Betty Comden and Adolf Green of On the Town and On the 20th Century. Hallelujah Baby won a pile of Tonys, including Best Musical and Best Actress. Now in its 24th year, the York Theatre's Musicals and Mufti series curates rarely produced or originally underappreciated gems. One week of rehearsals and one week of performances with scripts in hand, the audience gets to experience the heart of the show. For me, it was considering this big Broadway musical dabbling in civil rights during the tumultuous 1960s. Although naturally a tad dated, Hallelujah Baby is filled with excellent songs. The structure of following an outwardly ageless 25-year-old woman and her two male suitors through different eras was a clever conceit. A full production would offer the chance to really delineate the periods, costumes, and styles. In the meantime, we have this excellent short-lived off-Broadway study. As evidenced by our recent news cycle, the struggle to completely escape Jim Crow is sadly not over. Putting the show in historical perspective, this story was told by a creative team of white people in the 1960s. Fifty years later, Lin-Manuel Miranda has given us Hamilton. Where will we be in 2060? While this year's Mufti series is a celebration of three Julie Stein shows, this entertaining production of Hallelujah Baby is also a rare opportunity to look back half a century and consider the Broadway community's commentary on social issues and American history. That's a pretty big payoff for seeing a Jerry Mack show. Next up in the Mufti series, a bar mitzvah boy and subways are for sleeping. The title of our next play is Porto, and it's P-O-R-T-O, and it's surrounded by brackets. This was produced and shown at the WP Theater. In the very funny, very smart Porto, Kate Benson has a lot to say. Not only is she the playwright, she's also the narrator, commentator, thought bubble maker, and humorist, and she plays the brackets of the title. Miss Benson is listed in the playwright as playing the brackets. There's no character name. Porto is our main character a single woman in Brooklyn, living life but filled with all the standard, almost required anxieties of today. The play begins in darkness, listening to musings from the brackets about the making of sausage casings. Stay with me, please. When the curtain opens, we are in a hipster bar with foie gras sausages on the menu. Delicious or revolting animal abuse? The smarmy bartender, played by Noel Joseph Elaine, thinks one thing, and Porto's friend Drysack, who's perfectly a carpel. Well, Drysack is clearly and drunkenly on the other side of the argument. 
Drysack doesn't eat very much, just olives and bitterness. How we think about ourselves and others and what we think and why is the terrain we travel in this play, primarily from a woman's perspective. The journey is rich, complex, silly, recognizable, witty and awkward, like life itself. Porto is structured with our playwright's voice walking us through, yet also commenting on the action and scene changes. This is my second Kate Benson play, the first being the brilliantly titled A Beautiful Day in November on the Banks of the Greatest of the Great Lakes. Also very funny, that play used sports commentators narrating the action of a family Thanksgiving. If we are keeping score, Miss Benson is 2-0 and with WP Theater. Both plays were splendidly directed by Lee Sunday Evans, not only to coax out the humor, but also the humanity of the characters. A co-production with the Bushwick Star and in association with New George's, WP Theater has mounted an outstanding production in all facets. The set design, lighting, and direction and casting are all excellent. These actors fully inhabit their roles, yet the audience has the luxury of filling in the details with people we know or stereotypes we winkingly know about. Julia Sierna Frest plays Porto in an exquisite match of character and performer. You want to see what happens to her long after this play ends. WP Theater focuses on promoting female artists. Mission accomplished with this outstanding play in this production. If you want to try off Broadway, this is a great opportunity to see what all the fuss is about. Approachable, offbeat, clever, smart, thoughtful, and hilarious, Porto is just about perfect theater. Oh, and did I forget to mention the ending? Extraordinarily memorable. From the WP Theater to the Atlantic Theater Company and their production of Hangmen. Martin McDonough is currently nominated for two Academy Awards as the writer and co-producer of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. As a playwright, his resume includes The Beauty Queen of Lanon, The Cripple of Inishman, and The Pillowman. Given Mr. McDonough's track record and this play's title, it's a safe bet that Hangman will be at least ominous in tone. By the end, this dark comedy lands firmly in inky black territory at night without the benefit of any moonlight while wearing an eye mask. Hangman is fantastic. Set in the mid-1960s in Lancashire, England, the play is first about a man named Harry, who hang other men sentenced to death. He is considered the second best executioner in the land after Albert. While Albert has more hangings to his credit, they were Nazis, so those deaths have an asterisk when comparing body count. The opening scene shows one such episode in a gallows with a boy protesting his innocence. Two years later, hanging has since been abolished. Harry, his wife and daughter, own a pub filled with assorted characters. One day, a wily stranger appears. Hangman is mesmerizing, combining terrifying thoughts and ideas with a liberal dose of comedy. The play sheds a light on attitudes back in the 1960s, while also exaggerating the relentless drive for celebrity, no matter what the cost. The entire cast is superb throughout. Each character is distinct and realistic, yet theatrical. The words are even better, eliciting a wow from my mouth on numerous occasions. Hangman is another triumph for the Atlantic Theatre Company. Dungeon is the next performance I attended, presented by Ars Nova in one of their one-night series performances. 
Hit the Lights Theatre Company was selected to be a 2018 company in residence at Ars Nova, a major incubator of young talents beginning their careers. Using found materials, they specialize in transforming ordinary objects into something extraordinary. The company is composed of six multidisciplinary artists, including puppeteers, actors, musicians, vocalists, artisans, and everything in between. Dungeon successfully played the Cincinnati and Minnesota Fringe Festivals, was an audience pick at the former and a critic's pick at the latter. Given a one-night stand performance at Ars Nova, I decided to check them out. Using screen puppets, hand puppets, actors, lights, a screen, sheets, and a bass and a violin, Dungeon is described as a story of a young man who falls into the unknown to rescue the thing he holds most dear. I felt this was a version of Alice falling down the rabbit hole with scary images and darkness, odd monsters, spooky-looking trees, and the search and sue. This is definitely fear-is-fun territory, played for laughs with some quality imagery. There is a large amount of interesting puppetry and its evolution to be found around town these days. To be at that next level, like manual cinema, for example, I would say that the storytelling in Dungeon needs to be clearer. However, this will be a fun, high-energy company to watch as they continue to develop in residence. At the tiny, tiny second theater at Irish Repertory Theater is the play Jimmy Titanic. From Boston's Tiernaw Theater Company comes Jimmy Titanic, performed by its artistic director Colin Hamill. The setting is heaven in 2012, long after the Titanic has sunk. Jimmy is one of the Irish lads who worked on building the ship in Belfast and unfortunately was on that doomed first voyage. Why the last name Titanic, you ask? Well, apparently in heaven there's a great deal of celebrity associated with famous disaster deaths. So adopting the name Titanic affords you the chance to dance with an 800-year-old bubonic plague victim. I kid you not. Written by Bernard McMullen, Jimmy Titanic is a play with characters ranging from the bowels of the ship to the first-class deck. We travel from the offices of the New York Times to the mayor of Belfast, then brief encounters with heaven. God, Peter, and an effete Gabriel all make appearances. For the record, God is sort of a chain-smoking godfather type and a bit crusty. One man plays all of these characters, jumping from Jimmy and his bestie to Mr. Astor, throwing in assorted Titanic facts along the way. The tone frequently and abruptly changes from silly to serious so that the play is never grounded in anything other than an acting exercise. And therefore, Jimmy Titanic hits the proverbial iceberg. Time to lighten things up a bit with this year's first entry in the Encore series. And this one was entitled, Hey, Look Me Over. For its 25th anniversary, the first entry this year is not an underappreciated or forgotten musical. Instead, selection from nine shows which have not been picked by encores for a seven-performance revisit yet. Lucille Ball's Wildcat from 1960, about a rugged gal who dreams of striking oil, famous for the song Hey Look Me Over. A Hungarian immigrant engineering professor helps guide a football team in 1962's All-American, book by Mel Brooks. The 1957 Lena Horne Calypso-flavored vehicle Jamaica. A pair of Jerry Herman shows, Milk and Honey from 1961 and Mac and Mabel from 1974, wrap up the first act. 
Bob Martin, the man in chair from Drowsy Chaperone, is on hand to add humor between segments, thankfully. We then plow on to the second half with an opening overture from Julie Stein's Subways Are For Sleeping. The 1960 Frank Lesser flop Green Willow, about a magical town where the eldest men must heed the call to wander, leaving their women and children behind waiting for a return. Sail Away, a 1961 Noel Coward show centering on a brash, bold American divorcee working as a hostess on a British cruise ship. Finally, the crowd-pleasing George M. from 1968 wraps things up with Give My Regards to Broadway and some much-needed tap dancing to liven up the proceedings. Hey Look Me Over is entertaining in an analytical way for aficionados of musical theater. The hypothesis, despite their flaws, are these shows worth revisiting? The conclusion, mostly not. With a talented cast and a sumptuous orchestra, there are high points, though. Reed Burney and Judy Kuhn singing Once Upon a Time from All-American. Clifton Duncan's soaring vocals in Never Will I Marry from Green Willow. And the show which felt most revivable, Mac and Mabel, about Mac Sennett and the silent movie era. The song Movies Were Movies and Look What Happened to Mabel were both beautifully performed by Douglas Sills and Andrew Zalasosha. However, a jukebox of flops, near misses, or dated minor successes does not scream out for an encore in this moderately entertaining compilation. Next is another revival of sorts, the Actors Fund benefit concert performance of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Legendary Broadway stories about the understudy taking on the lead role are usually the stuff of fantasy entertainment. In the musical 42nd Street, the iconic line is, You're going to go out there a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. In 2002, Broadway had a real-life Star is Born moment. Thoroughly Modern Millie opened with an unknown Sutton Foster in the lead. Originally cast as the understudy, but elevated to the starring role during the pre-Broadway out-of-town run. After instant fame and a Tony Award for Best Actress, what followed was an incredible string of onstage successes, including The Drowsy Chaperone, Shrek, Anything Goes, and Violet. The Actors Fund announced a one-night benefit concert for this show, reuniting most of the original cast, so I had my chance to finally catch this piece. The original New York Times review was so negative, I skipped the show the first time around. Thankfully, the internet encourages alternative voices. After reading Ben Brantley's remarks now, they just sound mean-spirited and bitchy. In this staged concert version, the audience was filled to overflowing with industry types. The result was possibly the loudest sustained applause and the most standing ovations I have ever witnessed. These people knew the show, loved the score, and adored the actors. The environment was an extremely memorable combination of celebration and reunion with a dash of Broadway magic. So how does Millie hold up? In the 1920s, Millie leaves Kansas for New York as a modern gal to snag a wealthy husband, ideally a boss. She gets a room at a hotel for women that's run by a former actress turned infamous white slave trader. Naturally, Millie falls in love with a handsome but poor schlep named Jimmy, who has the invaluable skill of knowing the location of the juice joints. It's all silly pastiche, expertly put over by a committed and talented cast. Not all the songs and sections in Thoroughly Modern Millie are grade A, but there are enough of them to make you smile, laugh, 
and enjoy Big Broadly fun. Harriet Harris's Chinese Dragon Lady won her a Tony, and she was truly hilarious. The choreography was inspired, particularly the typewriter tap dancing effect. Both Gavin Creel as Jimmy and perfect caricaturist Mark Kudish, the boss, showed why they were Tony nominated for their performances. When Miss Foster belts out, Gimme Gimme That Thing Called Love, near the end of the show, this concert and its audience erupted into a frenzy of love and support quite fitting for a charity event. Founded in 1882, the Actors Fund is a national human services organization meeting the needs facing the unique challenges for people with a life in the arts. Services include emergency financial assistance, affordable housing, health care, and more. A worthwhile cause and a memorable evening that can only happen in New York. It's what keeps the Millies coming here year after year. From a theater company that's new to me, the Dreamscape Theater, is the play Pete Rex. In the New Kensington suburb of Pittsburgh, Pete lives in an apartment which is decorated in the finest man cave fashion. The walls are brown paneling, a Steeler's helmet for wall art, a string of Planet of the Apes lights, empty beer cans in a case by the door, the couch is red, an old folding chair, incredible Hulk videos placed under the television. Since Pete Rex is being performed in the tiny theater C at 59 East 59th, there's a lot of detail to see as you enter this very intimate space. The setting gives a strong sense of the people we are about to meet. The play opens with Pete and his best bud, Bo, in the midst of Madden Tuesday. The competition is well underway, and Bo now wants to play Gronk. For those not in the know, Madden is the popular long-running football video game series, and Gronkowski is a tight end for the New England Patriots. Madden Tuesday is apparently a standing weekly man cave date. Pete's ex-girlfriend, Julie, comes by with some disturbing news. The boys have not been watching television and do not know that the dinosaurs are loose in New Kensington and starting to eat people. Julie grabbed the little food there was left in the supermarket, namely zebra cakes, and ran right over. Pete loves those plastic-wrapped little Debbie brand things. Meanwhile, the dinosaurs are approaching, the noise is increasing, the overhead light is trembling, things are getting mighty scary. Is Pete Rex about escaped dinosaurs terrorizing a small town? Well, Pete has always been fascinated by dinosaurs and wanted to be a paleontologist. The mood here is Jurassic-level emotional drama, although the dinosaurs do get to eat a bit in the process. Alexander V. Thompson's play covers much territory, from man-child relationships to crisis management to jealousy to mental stability. The cast is game, and the director, Brad Raimondo reasonably steers an overabundance of styles, including melodrama, absurdity, comedy, horror, ridiculousness, and poignancy. That's a lot to handle, and Pete Rex cannot survive the onslaught. A nicely written ending wraps up a serious, yet wildly overcooked play. Miles for Mary is our next play. Playwrights Horizon has kicked off a new Redux series on top of its regular programming, this effort is focused on allowing worthy off-off-Broadway plays, often with extremely limited runs, another opportunity to be appreciated and in a larger venue. Miles for Mary was created by the Mad Ones, written by its cast and director, Lila Neugebauer. She was the director of the Antipodes and the Wolves. 
In the riches of New York theater, it's often difficult to see every great piece, especially when rave reviews come out late into a short run. After seeing this play, I'm extraordinarily excited for this series and thankful that this exceptional work has been showcased. Miles for Mary is about a school in Garrison, Ohio, circa 1988-1989. The setting is a teacher's room with slogans on the wall like, Do More. There's the table, the desk, the coffee pot, and the teachers. The play opens with a discussion on the upcoming school year's annual telethon. Miles for Mary raises scholarship funds in honor of a promising student-athlete who was tragically killed in a car accident years earlier. The teachers are first seen negotiating this year's fundraising theme. Amidst this apparently good-natured exercise is workplace tension extraordinaire. Everyone is trying their darndest to get along. Passive-aggressive behavior oozes. Stretched out over many meetings leading up to the telethon, the teachers all become more irritating and more irritable. Filled with all kinds of psychobabble mumbo-jumbo about feelings, the result is outrageously hilarious. At some point, Miles for Mary becomes a stand-in for any staff meeting with opinionated, pretentious, and pandering group dynamics. Everyone in this cast was excellent. Mark Vino as the nerdly, tightly-wound AV guy. Joe Kernett as the committed but possibly dim-witted coach and health teacher. Michael Dalto as the group's leader who over-embraces sharing, yet tries to lead discussions with a stopwatch. Amy Stotts as Brenda on speakerphone since she's out with some illness but still part of the committee. Stephanie Ray Thompson is the tracksuit-wearing, coffee-drinking, quip-hurling firecracker. Stacy Yen is the new member of the committee, just trying to be helpful yet bring fresh new ideas to the group. Miles for Mary is a play for anyone who has ever been in a meeting and wanted to strangle someone who says stupid things. Or, maybe Miles for Mary is a mirror for those pedantic fools who babble speak about nothing. Gorgeously paced, this play ranges from extremely silly to incredibly intense and uncomfortable. Miles for Mary is great theater. I hope this play becomes a staple across regional theaters everywhere. Now we'll head off off Broadway to the theater for the new city and the play Josh the Black Babe Ruth. For Black History Month, theater for the new city decided to remount a production of Josh the Black Babe Ruth. Written by Michael A. Jones, the play is based on the life of Josh Gibson, the second Negro Leagues player to be elected into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He was known as the Black Babe Ruth due to his home run proficiency. He tragically died at the age of 35 from complications related to a brain tumor, which may have been linked to drug usage. In this play, we chart the course from the family migration from Georgia to Pittsburgh, through his career, to his death. This play comes across as a series of vignettes rather than a traditional story arc. Satchel Paige, who preceded Josh Gibson into the Hall of Fame, looms large here as both men try to break into the all-white major leagues. In addition to the career storyline, there is domestic drama about his wife, whom he never sees while traveling, and a mistress as well. The temptress is portrayed as a bar-hopping, drug-taking, bad-influence party girl. Connecting all of this is the guitar man, who strums and sings songs of the period such as Louis Jordan's Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. Images of the players, the baseball league, and the Jim Crow South are projected on the wall during transitions. One is a sign announcing an upcoming Klan meeting to discuss opposition to, quote, communism and integration, unquote. Pictures of lynchings are also featured. 
This is a small, off-off-Broadway house, and this production can be commended for very good performances by all of the actors. David Roberts takes us through the mindset of Josh from brash bravado to the self-destructive breakdown. As Satchel, Daniel Danielson is appropriately larger than life with the charisma of the famously entertaining pitcher. The smaller role of Josh's wife, Patty, is played by Daphne Danielle. Her scene, trying to find her husband at the bar through questioning the audience members, elicited deserved end-of-scene applause. Josh, The Black Babe Ruth is not a great play, and the production is paced a little slowly between the scenes. The projected images are very powerful, but their intensity competes with rather than enhances the words. However, for an inexpensive $18 ticket price, this is a live, well-acted biography and a rewarding addition to the mirrors we must face on historical American race discrimination. And on we go to another off-off-Broadway theater company, the Metropolitan Playhouse, and their production of A Marriage Contract. Augustine Daly was a preeminent theater manager, critic, and playwright from the latter part of the 19th century. He built and opened Daly's Theater in 1879 after a fire destroyed the company's original New York home. In 1893, he opened a London theater as well. Of the nearly 100 works credited to his name, nearly all were adaptations. A Marriage Contract, or Grass vs. Granite, was first produced in 1892 based upon a German play whose title is loosely translated as Big City Atmosphere. Here, the setting was transported from Berlin to New York and was originally called a test case or grass versus granite. The play opens in the big metropolis and a city slicker rascal named Robert Fleming is attempting to persuade business magnate Jessica Pognit to give his blessing for his daughter's hand in marriage. In today's vernacular, He's a player and one of a sketchy list of suitors. He is quickly rejected by the father, and another man, the bumbling Nathaniel Grinnell, gives it a shot, but it's too late to the punch. So for Ned to marry young Sabina Pognip, there needs to be a marriage contract. Robert is forced to choose between big city excitement, granite, and the teensy country town of East Lemons, grass. A marriage contract is a funny play. Written 125 years ago, it still can elicit laughs through clever wordplay and is firmly planted in situation comedy land. Robert may have taken ill with influenza provincialis when the small-town boredom of East Lemons and its nosy busybodies becomes too stifling to bear. Then there's the philandering Fred Ned Jasmine, who is married to Juno, who tries not to see what's really going on. Will the couple settle down and figure out their relationships? Will country life have any shot of competing with the big city? Will a champagne party cause a scandalous ruckus? Is the maid really called a saucy minx for singing while dusting? Metropolitan Playhouse specializes in plays from America's literary past, and I enjoyed a marriage contract. The director, Alex Rowe, effectively stages a play in their small, intimate space and keeps the action and clowning moving along. Amazingly, there's not a whiff of mothballs here. The play is still funny despite its age. Our two suitors were excellent. Trevor St. John Gilbert as Robert and Tyler Kent as Nathaniel both inhabited their characters exceptionally well. Both performances are of the period, yet come across as freshly contemporary, century-old stereotypes, energetically painted in three dimensions. With the exception of one cringingly awful performance in a very minor part, the cast is good. I saw the third preview. 
Greatness might be achieved by ratcheting up this broad comedy a notch or two. Overall, a marriage contract is a welcome discovery. Our February 2018 journey takes us to Lincoln Center Theater and its production of Queens. Polish-born playwright Martina Mayok wowed me a few seasons ago with Ironbound, the story of an immigrant woman waiting for the bus outside a rundown New Jersey factory where she works. Spanning 20 years and three relationships, this was a study in one woman's attempt to find security, a decent living, a decent man, in a harsh world that does not value her existence. An outstanding play, Iron Brown is currently running in Los Angeles with Marin Ireland, who is brilliantly riveting in the role. With her new play, Queens, Ms. Mayo continued to spotlight the immigrant experience, this time on a more ambitious scale. The action takes place in a basement apartment in Queens, New York in June 2017. Like Ironbound, however, this one also spans a great deal of time and through various parts of the world between 2001 and 2017. The play opens with a group of unrelated immigrant women living together, struggling to make ends meet. One of them is leaving to return to Honduras. Also like Ironbound, the play moves back and forth in time and storylines are filled in. The women hail from different countries, including Poland, Ukraine, Syria, and Afghanistan, all drawn to the melting pot and promise of America, or to escape, living difficult, challenging lives with regrets, hopes, and dreams. A young woman arrives in search of her mother, whom she has not seen for 15 years. Anna Reeder, in a remarkably complex performance, plays Renia. She left Poland many years ago and is taking in refugees for rent in this basement. Over the course of nearly three hours, this epic unfolds. Depending on your individual perspective, Queens will provoke multiple feelings. Empathy, which is surely lacking in America at the moment. Sadness, such as a fellow theatergoer who was bawling at the end, the raw emotions perhaps too real for her. Disgust, for the way human beings treat each other. Added marvel, too, as you grasp the sheer determination and inner strength of these women as they navigate their complicated lives. Danya Tamor directed this piece, which is being presented at the small Claritoe Theater in a superlative staging. Each actress is astonishingly real, some inhabit more than one character. Laura Jelinek's set design is simply amazing. When you walk in the theater, you notice birds painted on the back wall flying away in various levels of focus. A large ceiling hangs in midair. Women may have the glass ceiling to contend with, but immigrant women have the basement ceiling. This specific production of Queens is not to be missed. And our last entry this month, and perhaps most fun, is Jerry Springer, The Opera, presented by the new group. Which of the following of these five things is the most unbelievable? That Jerry Springer the Opera is what it says it is? That Jerry Springer the Opera won the 2004 Olivier Award for Best New Musical? That Jerry Springer the Opera makes the Book of Mormon look like wholesome entertainment? That Jerry Springer's show is still on television, having passed its 25th anniversary? That Republicans, in the wake of another school shooting, will actually do something about gun violence rather than offer their prayers and condolences? I know, too easy a multiple-choice question, probably. The homepage for this television show recruits new guests and currently asks, 
quote, did you have a child with a transsexual or are you pregnant by a transsexual? Quote, are you ready to turn up and get lit and confront somebody? Quote, do you have a sexy job? Somehow this amalgamate trash has been turned into an opera. Well, actually more of a musical with operatic flourishes. The opening number starts, My mom used to be, my mom used to be, my mom used to be, my mom used to be my dad. The lyrics of this show are laugh-out-loud hilarious. Crude, rude, and as over-the-top as the source material, Act 1 of this show is raunchy musical comedy wrongness. I was howling throughout. Frankly, it's a bit hard to understand how this show took so long to get across the pond from London. Yes, the second act is as blasphemous as anything I have ever seen, including a now PG-rated The Book of Mormon. The first half of this inspired lunacy is the real thrill here. The second half is funny too, but falls slightly short of the sublime genius. That I can use sublime genius and Jerry Springer in a sentence is enough to recommend this show. Full credit and gratitude for this outrageously fun piece goes to the composer and lyricist Richard Thomas and the book writer Stuart Lee. There is a song entitled This Is My Jerry Springer Moment. It's the line, So dip me in chocolate and throw me to the lesbians, tickles your funny bone, then there are hundreds of laughs in store for you here. I didn't actually count the laughs, but there are way, way, way more than a few dozen. I'll say no more except that the music is terrific, the singing fantastic, the set totally on point, direction that precisely escalates the chaos, and a perfect Tiffany man as Chantel. The new group has scored a colossal success with Jerry Springer the Opera. That wraps up this edition of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Looking forward to the month of March, I'll be traveling to Chicago to the Looking Glass Theater Company's production of Plantation, which is directed by Friends alum David Schwimmer, as well as the Broadway debut of the Marvel Comics action superstar Chris Evans, who plays Captain America. He's going to be on Broadway in Lobby Hero, written by Kenneth Longren, who wrote an Oscar for his screenplay Manchester by the Sea. A lot of good theater to look forward to in the month of March. Thank you again for listening, and please visit www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com for a fuller catalog. You can also email comments or suggestions to me at theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net.